Alright everyone, welcome to the next episode of the Sinister Piffle Podcast. This is episode number five. The False Dogmas of Moral Relativism. Uh, where to begin? Moral Relativism is the idea that right and wrong have no objective existence, um, that no morality exists outside of humans and their provincial wants and desires, that uh, every act that's made is neither good nor bad objectively. At most, on this view, actions are only perceived as good or bad by people, but that these perceptions are merely relics of a particular culture and nothing more. In today's world, relativism is no small movement of thought, and uh, as such... It has produced its fair share of dogmas. Dogmas that, uh, whether they've helped um, spread the relativism or not, there are falsehoods that also happen to be rather highly unexecutable, I think, in a pragmatic sense, when drawn to their logical conclusions. Thus, I aim, in this episode, to take a look at some of the primary dogmas of moral relativism and explain why it is that they are false and or impractical. Uh, As perhaps the first dogma of moral relativism, allow me to address the infamous is-ought distinction. Uh, In the 1700s, there was a really stunningly insightful philosopher from modern-day Scotland, uh, David Hume, and he made really the intellectual philosophical scene in that time in the 18th century, just tremble in so many different ways. Um, One of the main ways that he did this was through what he denoted as uh, the various silly extrapolations that humans appear to insert into the world that they, or that don't really make any empirical or logical sense or at least they involve extra assumptions that aren't really justified in his view. Uh, One is the nature of causality, which I will later put forth as a detriment to the views of reductionism. Um, Another is the nature of is and ought often known as the is-ought distinction or is-ought problem, the is-ought distinction is commonly cited as saying 
that uh, one cannot deduce how something ought to be from how something is. So that's how the physical world is according to methods of science. Basically. This is to say that uh, this cannot be done without at least adopting extra assumptions which are not readily apparent as being a part of what is. So, if I have a ball, say, um, there's nothing about the ball itself that can tell you whether you should throw it or dribble it, or destroy it, or fill in the blank. This distinction seems very much a sound one, and I don't wish to quibble with Hume over it for now, but uh, whether he was right or wrong is of no real consequence here, as anyone who cites this point as a reason that objective morality can't exist, as relativists are often tempted to do, is uh, quite mistaken. There are a few points to prod at here. Uh, first, I would ask to the relativist, or anyone, uh, just simply, whoever said that morality is ever solely derived from what is? In addition to that, uh, whoever said that what morality is isn't part of what is. Morality, of course, could be partially derived from what is because, or it must be partially derived from what it is, because without what is, then what ought to be could not be. Moral statements deal with the navigational relationship between the actual world and all logically possible worlds. This is to say that the facts of the scientific material reality are very much, very much relevant to morality, which should hardly be surprising. Consider the eminent old tale of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Uh, here, the eponymous protagonist couldn't possibly know whether or not she ought to eat the poison apple if she didn't know that there were an apple in the first place. Or for that matter if she didn't know that she were a human, or that she knew the apple was poison, so on and so forth. This is, notwithstanding um, all other factors, no matter how trivial, that uh, eating the apple could affect who knows what could happen. There's the famous so-called butterfly effect, that if you had a time machine and went back in time 
and did something so small as to change the earth by stepping on the wings of a butterfly that uh, he would change the course of the history forever. And that just goes to the point that uh, we don't know what causes what and uh, entirely, and that there are it's a, an immensely complex situation that we are dealing with. Um, perhaps she should deny the apple. Maybe she should take it from the hag and smash it against a tree. In any event, the apple, the hag, Snow White, etc., they all need to exist in order for this actual reality to be compared to the logically possible reality of what is morally better or worse. This isn't simply about being able to know what is right or wrong, either, but having entities in relation to one another. This precise moral arrangement can exist if the apple doesn't exist, or if our protagonist doesn't exist, or the evil hag. In return, the parameters would change with arbitrary triviality, were it, uh, say, an orange, or a different girl, or even Prince Charming, who was offering the apple to Snow White, or the orange. <laughs> uh, second, though I would say they're relevant, I agree with Hume to a large degree when he says that morality is not deduced from scientific facts. The logic that Hume presented here um, really seems fully and even almost hermetically airtight, but I suppose, uh, again, I would, I would ask what really, who said we were looking to deduce moral facts from physical ones? This is, in fact, not what we're doing when we engage in the field of morality, or so I argue. And so Deutsch, and probably Popper as well, would contend. We aren't looking to directly deduce what is moral from what is true according to science. Uh, we're looking to explain. And moral explanations can absolutely follow from the explanations of science, as all good explanations are on a level logical playing field, so to speak. Yeah, any explanation can implicate other explanations within them, or may be implicated in other explanations, and they can follow from each other. 
everyone who has been or has spent time with a child ever knows the pain of this. Upon uttering a perfectly sufficient explanation for some phenomenon, the child then asks, Why? You then proffer another good explanation, only to result in another resounding, Why? Some adults are actually like this, too. <laughs> this continues or could continue ad infinitum. Now, as we've already gone through Deutsch's notion of explanation in the previous episode, uh, I really now want to begin to relate to you why this conception of epistemology and explanation and knowledge is not only relevant, but it's really crucial to the accurate understanding of morality. Uh, an explanation is a statement of how something is in reality, of what is out there. These explanations are all on even ground in the sense that they can be good or bad in precisely the ways that I delineated in the previous episode. Hard or easy to vary. The criteria for a good explanation are entirely independent of the subtype of explanation being given. Whether you seek to explain the physical phenomenon of, a re of refraction, say, or uh, the morality of purchasing a new iPhone, or the beauty of a rose. These are all explanations which can be hard or easy to vary while attempting to account for something. With this in mind, when we look at what we've accumul accumulated throughout history, it seems increasingly apparent that all good explanations and all true or at least increasingly accurate knowledge is connected. This is because reality under this paradigm, you could say, is defined as that which is impossible to vary. Implications of explanations really can't help but to le lend themselves to deduction. And no doubt these assertions spark questions, and I intend to elaborate extensively on this topic in the coming episodes. But uh, back to Hume for, for now. Uh, lastly, on the Hume thing, contra not Hume himself, but those who parrot Hume's distinction in this modern day, I'd like to note the catch-22 that these relativists usually are in. 
without even disproving the is-ought problem, one can observe that um, the physical fact cannot be, or that a physical fact, sorry, cannot be deduced without first having certain values. In other words, a morality. Without the values of logical consistency or of evidence, for instance, uh, one cannot make a physically factual claim about anything, a scientifically factual claim. You have to value things first. And if one does not recognize these values, they may as well believe in a completely undetectable ethereal panda that follows them around eating equally ethereal and undetectable shoots of bamboo and spitting them on the passers-by every day, and they wonder why people don't like them. Regardless of this, as I've said, um, we are not searching for deduction here, but explanation. And I repeat myself here with, I think, sufficient uh, reason, because this distinction really matters. A moral, this is epistemology. A moral explanation can follow from a factual explanation. Another dogma of moral relativism is that all morals are nothing more than manifestations of biology and culture. Um, an innocuous example of this is that if you think that I've committed an immoral act when you discover that I skipped class last Tuesday, it's just a matter of taste in the end. How could it be otherwise? It seems as though it could well be just an expression of taste. But the pernicious side of this coin rears its head almost as often in some parts of the world. When morals are said to be a matter of taste, and then one has no ground to stand upon when criticizing others' morals, uh, one is not rightly able to criticize, say, the Saudis for decapitating atheists in the public square simply because they don't believe in a god, or are even just alleged to not believe in a god. Or, say, no one has a leg to stand on when criticizing the drug cartels in Latin America for the atrocities that they commit and the corruption that they promulgate, the lives they destroy. As Deutsch put it, um, if this is the case, then we only have two options that follow logically. Either embrace unreason, or live without ever making a moral judgment. I can't see, and Deutsch can't see, a third option here. They seem mutually exclusive. And both of them are untenable, because 
even by the most meek and mild Confucius or the most uh, grotesque Pansram or Bundy, this is untenable. And lo and behold, Confucius made many, many moral preachments, and Karl Panzram uh, was perhaps the most brutal, um, utter, utterly psychopathic serial killer to have had the dubious honor of corrupting the soil beneath our feet uh, with the blood he spilled. Only perhaps... Uh, the absolutely most serious nihilist who, a bit oxymoronically, takes nihilism so seriously that he quite literally does nothing until he dies a few days later due to dehydration, would do this. Except even that decision is also a choice, and that falls under the reign of the field of morality as well. It's inescapable. It's true, this itself is an objection to relativism that doesn't attack the denial that one universal uh, morality exists in the ontological sense. Ontological sense meaning what the, the ground level of reality is, even if we can't ever know it, but what really is. Um, but it more rather presents an immense sort of practical problem for anyone who puts stock into relativism. When it comes time to make decisions, one can't just sit back and not decide because that is a moral choice as well. A doctrine of non-judgment has become very popular in Western culture, and, for the most part, it's a good thing. It's derived from relativist thinking. Tolerance and love and freedom and uh, individualism are the best traits that our, dare I say, magnificent culture is built upon. Uh, but it can go too far. Again, not ontologically, not at the base level of reality, but practically speaking or not necessarily ontologically, that's important, but practically speaking, the judgment of principles that conflict with ours is necessary because eventually one will win out. And at a bedrock level of human psychology, at least, a near 100% proportion of those who were bleeding about non-judgment and relativism will choose more traditional Western values over those of any other cultures when push comes to shove. When you're the one being invaded, it doesn't look so great when a culture is being shoved down your throat, is it? Of course, the relativists can say, as they often do, um, that they do make moral judgments, but it's simply a parochial artifact, I guess, of their own of their own culture, and that they don't really 
have a leg to stand on when criticizing the mores and mora- morals of other cultures because ultimately, I guess, neither is right or wrong. This isn't satisfying to me as rebuttals go. I'd say that it's, well, honestly, very lazy thinking. An excuse. Even if I didn't deny that it could be possible that there could be no true right or wrong, which I do, I would want, I would think I would want to do as much investigation as possible into the subject before bringing down that gavel in the courthouse, as many so blithely seem to do. Because if objective morality does exist, then it is ipso facto the most important thing to be concerned about. Now, I hope for a peaceful integration of global cultures as much, if not more, than the next person. And when I laud the West, I'm not saying that uh, this is that this one culture is entirely more correct or more preferable than any other, but that aspects of it certainly are. Aspects of any culture may be preferable to those of others. They may be more correct. They may be closer to what we'll talk about later, moral reality. All is truly not equal, at least not at the same time and the same place. And some cultures will have moral ideas more correct than others. For instance, Japan has some of the lowest crime rates per capita of any country anywhere in history, of any region anywhere in history that we know of. This is a fantastic achievement, a fantastic cultural achievement. The level of trust in Japanese society truly is very high. Yet, simultaneously, Japan also has a notoriously stiff and harsh work culture, and a resulting suicidality rate which is no less than despairing. It's, it's completely completely diminishing of your soul if you keep looking at the numbers. In another time, on the other side of the globe, um, there was once an era where it was the Islamic world, not the Western European world, or rather Western world of Christendom, because At this time, Islam had control of much of Europe as well. That stood almost paramount as a civilization that, I would say, revered the closest thing resembling the nascence of liberal values and progress of all kinds, certainly for the time at least. They were reasonably tolerant for the age, Um, compared to non-Islamic Europe especially. 
They created our current numeral system, of course. Most people know this. The numbers we use, the those numerals are Arabic numerals, as opposed to, say, the Roman numerals, which are highly impractical in comparison. The great per Persian mathematician, uh, Muhammad ibn Musa al-Kharizmi, -Khar I'm not Persian, forgive me for that, is the father of algebra. The uh, mystical work of the great poet Rumi, Moi, Rumi, gives me chills even after a transition, even after translation, sorry, from Arabic to English. I, I do wish to some degree that I, I knew Arabic fluently and on a native level so I could read Rumi, or sorry, uh, now I can't even recall if, uh, no, I, I believe he wrote in Arabic, not uh, Persian, but correct me if I'm wrong. Either way, I, I would have loved to have had that opportunity, maybe one day. <laughs> and, uh, Further, the Muslim scholars of these times are quite actually the reason that we have a glimpse into antiquity, as many of the ancient Greek texts, for instance, including those of Plato and Aristotle and um, some of the other mathematicians and philosophers of the time, only survived through the dutiful preservation and translation of them done by Islamic scholars under the caliphate. It was around this time, at this point, that the West, or non-Islamic Europe, had little to put forth in terms of progress except for some not insignificant advances in architecture. But as far as everything else, it was relatively a quiet time, you could say. Even today, there are plenty of ideas that perhaps Western culture has to some degree or other. Um, backwards. Uh, and other cultures might be better optimized or on the right track for these things. I really just want to say that the West demonstrably has the right idea when it comes to the main necessities of prosperous civilization and moral institutions. Liberal democracy and individual human rights. Um, I'll talk about this more touches political philosophy and morality, uh, and we will discuss this further in another episode. But beyond these practical and pragmatic problems with relativism, uh, I want to tackle now a critically important dogma of this way of thinking, which is subjectivity. I said in the beginning uh, 
that uh, I wasn't going to argue against sort of anti-realism. The notion that there isn't an objective reality, or if there is, it's only created by your mind. That everything's subjective. Everything is relative. Not just morality, but everything. Uh, it's subjectivity is the idea that ultimately everyone has their own experience of reality and ergo perhaps nothing is objective as I just said it's all subjective or relative is a mantra that you'll often hear if you go to a high school or college campus amongst the din of young students and I find this almost curiously ironic uh, and it's I guess it's no wonder because it doesn't make any logical sense because put simply the claim that it's all subjective really I suppose slyly smuggles in a critically fatal assumption for itself which is that when stating this claim what the speaker is actually doing here is making an appeal to objectivity um, and this appeal contradicts the actual claim itself it's self-refuting the claim that it's all subjective is an objective claim. It relies on the fact that the claim that it's all subjective is objectively a fact. The only main relativistic statement, in other words, everything that it stands for, that everything is subjective is an entirely objective statement I find this misplaced belief ironic as I said because most people who make this claim don't realize the contradiction that exists within it and those of you who do realize it yet still spout it out either don't believe in or understand logic are disingenuous or they have a tremendous case of cognitive dissonance it's probably worth a, a lab study at Stanford there is one way a relativist can attempt to get out of this predicament that I've illustrated here um, they can further assert that it's only morality that isn't objective but that there is still an objective scientific reality and this brings us back into morality so they already have to give up anti-realism now anti-realism has some more sophisticated arguments and we could go over the philosophy behind that but when we're discussing here we're discussing or I'm discussing at least, some of the more 
the more common notions of relativism and anti-realism in this sense. Uh, There are some anti-realist arguments that can make sense, and some smart people are convinced by them, but I'm talking the more when you hear a random college student say it's all relative or it's all subjective, or just any person who isn't a serious thinker on these issues and has read all the literature on realism and anti-realism and the arguments for truth and so on. But I still don't think that even the statement that um, that it's only morality that isn't objective and scientific reality can still be objective. I'm not convinced by this. Uh, there, as a distinction here is, um, in my view, a distinction without a difference. The statement that morality is not objective still must appeal to objectivity, for one. And second, I still would assert, even though I haven't gone deeply into this yet, that morality is part of what is. It's truly not what is ought to be. In a certain sense, it's part of what is. Um, There are plenty of things that are without being so in a scientific materialist sense as well. There is not and can't be a hard science of numbers or other abstractions as gone over in the last episode, yet they objectively exist. Even if there are material correlates of these things. Uh, Additionally, this explanation denies the logically established fact that moral explanations can follow from scientific ones, as we discussed a little earlier. It's an important point to keep in mind. They are all on the same logical playing field. Because it's all epistemology. So what is scientifically and what is abstractly may be existing as entities in different ways, but this does not imply that abstract objects, such as morality are not in a state of what is in and of themselves, they simply exist in a different way than physical entities do. And here I'm not taking refuge in the idea that there is no isot distinction, though contrary somewhat, I think, to what I said before, I think that this can be debated due, I suppose, to Hume's chronologically bestowed ignorance of the falsity of his empiricism. Um, Though even on this debate, I'm not entirely sure on which side I would end up. But that's a topic for another time. Now I'd say that here I'm just trying to elucidate for you the process of how 
explanations relate to each other. They're all on the same logical plane, same plane field, unified by the fact that what explanation is doesn't vary, even when its subject matter does. Or rather, that explanation can be hard or easy to vary. An explanation is a statement of what is out there. It can be good or bad, depending on how hard or easy to vary it is, while still accounting for that which it claims to account for. This is perhaps the most important notion in this whole series in epistemology and of this whole philosophy here. Explanations contain direct and indirect implications, and one can logically deduce the intermingling elements of different explanations regardless of what kind of explanation they are meaning what they refer to, not as in uh, different kinds of knowledge, and they're all explanatory knowledge. So I hope that throughout this episode I've been able to show how moral relativism is a mistake for more reasons than one, and it isn't even a practic particularly practical mistake to act on either. Um, in the next coming episodes of the epistemological series, epistemology series, um, I want to go into and answer and expand on some of the looser ends in this and the past previous chapters, um, which are no less than begging to be given life in words, and then later on after that, I think I want to go further into ideas on how theories are better thought of as critiques, and at that point I'll praise moral relativism again, and we'll go into other moral theories because they're fun and consequential. And uh, we'll talk about dogmas and traditions and what I have to say about those things and Deutsch as well. So, in the end, the dogmas what I see as the dogmas of moral relativism are false and self-contradictory. And I would say that, maybe only slightly ironically, that this is a good thing. As always, I thank you for listening, and I hope you're doing well.